Today's show is sponsored by MongoDB. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB today to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and much more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out today at mongodb.com atlas. That's mongodb.com atlas. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Good to be with everybody this week. Hope everybody's doing well. We are here in the very last week of January. January is almost done. We are almost one-twelfth of the way through the year 2020. Time flies. Hope everybody's doing very well. Hope everybody's staying warm. It's still a little bit cold in various parts of the world, especially uh, here in the United States, uh, here in Raleigh, and lots of northern places and such. So hope everybody's doing well. Kind of a busy week in terms of things related to money uh, in technology. So let's go ahead and jump right into some of the news announcements from this past week for Cloud News of the Week. First one is security company Sneak took a $150 million round, uh, C round of funding. So uh, they continue to grow, developer-focused security company, lots of focus around uh, integrating security into developer workflows, things like GitHub and, and other things. Uh, but $150 million C round, uh, they continue to talk about growing the number of customers, growing the revenue. So congratulations to Sneak. The second one was FireEye uh, acquired cloud visibility company Cloudvisory LLC to help them boost visibility into uh, security workloads, uh, compliance workloads, and so forth. So, um, you know, FireEye, who is out sort of watching what's going on with your, with your network traffic and so forth, trying to be a little closer to the security and compliance space. Third one, uh, second acquisition on our list, is VMware acquired AI-based network analytics startup Nyansa, hope I got that right. Nyansa, uh, sort of AI ops focused for networking. Obviously, as VMware gets more and more into uh, software-based networking and multi-cloud networking, um, looking to bring some uh, more intelligence around those platforms. So acquired um, Nyansa, excuse me if I pronounce that wrong, N-Y-A-N-S-A. And finally, uh, Arista acquired... Um, Cloudcast alum Big Switch this past week. So uh, Big Switch, uh, really one of the early pioneers way back in the day with NYSERA around SDN, um, had really been more focused uh, over years over the years on things like uh, multi-cloud networking and uh, multi-cloud monitoring. So uh, Arista, apparently in a bidding war with a number of other companies, acquires Big Switch. So kind of a lot of acquisitions this week, a little bit of uh, investment uh, in terms of uh, funding. So with that, we're going to kind of wrap it up, kind of keep Cloud News of the Week fairly short this week. Um, we'll put, uh, put those links in the show notes if you want to dig into those acquisitions a little bit more. But with that, we're going to kind of dive into a topic that I know a lot of you are very, very interested, especially if you are programmers, especially if you are building more modern types of applications in terms of APIs. And we're going to dig into that topic much, much more after the break. Today's Cloudcast is brought to you by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring platform that brings together your infrastructure metrics, distributed traces, and logs into one platform. Datadog enables all teams within an organization to track, manage, and monitor their SLOs in the same place that they're already monitoring and managing their applications, infrastructure, logs, user experience, and much more. Your teams are able to search, sort, and filter all their SLOs in a comprehensive view and easily visualize the status of individual SLOs in their application dashboards. 
This allows your teams to communicate that SLO status to the broader teams, executives, and external customers. Now you can manage all your SLOs along with your applications, infrastructure, and logs in one place with Datadog. Try Datadog for yourself with a free 14-day trial, and you'll receive a complimentary t-shirt. Just go to datadog.com slash cloudcast. That's datadog.com slash cloudcast. Today's Cloudcast is sponsored by UpCloud. Is your website running slow? Supercharge your hosting performance by deploying on the world's fastest cloud infrastructure. UpCloud offers superior cloud servers with advanced scalability, instant backup snapshots, an easy-to-use control panel, a fully-featured API, and a ton of integration options and management partners. Pricing starts at only $5 a month with enough performance options to host any website or app, all backed by 24 by 7 live in-house support. You can get started today with a free trial using the promo code CLOUDCAST at upcloud.com slash signup. That's upcloud.com slash signup with promo code CLOUDCAST and receive an extra $50 to get going. So remember, that's upcloud.com slash signup, promo code CLOUDCAST. And we're back. And folks, you know, as we've been doing here throughout the beginning of 2020, uh, we've been really looking at some some topics that we know that are very interesting to you and, and we think really are going to have kind of a big impact um, on the types of projects that you'd be working on this year. So one of the things that we really wanted to dig into, and we haven't necessarily dug into it for a little while, uh, we've kind of dabbled around the edges, but kind of all things APIs. You know, we're seeing a lot in the news about, you know, just kind of changing landscape of how applications are developed. We've seen some interesting applications. And so we thought we'd really uh, sort of get back into diving into to APIs, some of the trends and things that are happening. And so very excited to bring back an old friend of the show, somebody who uh, we always look to as sort of an expert around API. So it's great to have James Higginbotham, who is founder of Launch Any. James, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here again. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. I know uh, I get your newsletter uh, about every week, so I get a chance to keep up with it. But uh, for those who may not have heard you uh, uh, you know, back a couple of years ago when you were on, give us a sense of kind of the types of things that you work on and, and sort of uh, a little bit of your background around APIs. Sure. So, so my background start started as a software developer and architect. I worked in enterprise IT and SaaS companies. Uh, now I do a lot of consulting uh, for both uh, enterprise IT as well as SaaS companies in the area of APIs and microservices. So I do consulting. I offer on-site training as well as author books and and posts and white papers around the subject. So uh, I've been involved in training over a thousand, uh, you know, thousands of uh, of participants face to face around the world around the topics of API, microservices, cloud native architecture, and also consult into offices of the CIO, CTO, and various product teams. And that spanned a, a variety of business verticals from banking to hotels, uh, network devices, travel, commercial insurance, airlines, all sorts of different companies. So uh, I really see my my role inside these organizations to help people navigate all of the decisions around an API program uh, so that they, their program's more effective and yeah. efficient. Yeah, no, that, and that's that was kind of how we got to know you. Uh, we we got to know you a little bit. Um, you were doing some work uh, for a company called Momentum SI at the time, and like I said, we've always kept up with with the work that you do. It's always you know very very uh, both broad and deep. So looking forward to the conversation today. Um, so let's let's start with you know APIs um, are kind of in the in in the conversation with with every technical discussion these days, and sometimes I feel like they just get lumped in, and sometimes they're they're sort of the center of what's going on. Um, you know, if, if somebody reaches out to you and they say, Hey, you know, we think we need to, uh, have an API program. We think we need an API framework. Like what's, what's a good starting point, especially, you know, sort of now in 2020 with all the new things coming along, how do you, how do you even start to begin to think about them? Do you have sort of a, a framework or a dichotomy in your head as to how you help people think about 
where they make sense? How do you how do you deal with them? That type of thing. I do. I have a framework that I approach with. It, it helps the organization kind of navigate all these decisions, as I mentioned, and helps them embark on an API journey if they're just starting out or to uh, to find any kind of gaps they have in their program if if they're already in flight with with a program and and they're busy trying to deliver and they're just looking ways to optimize it. So uh, I, what I generally do is start with an assessment, just kind of look at what an organization's API program consists of, what they're doing. Uh, I particularly look across eight separate disciplines. So if you could just imagine like a, a compass point or a compass with eight points on it, uh, I call it the API strategy compass. And so we just walk around that compass looking at directionally, what are they doing across their strategy, their governance, how they're managing their portfolio, uh, they're managing their API adoption and discovery of their APIs for both internal and external consumers, um, how they're documenting it and helping people onboard, how they design, uh, how they manage it, the kind of analytics they use, and just how they apply general product ownership to their APIs. Uh, and that helps kind of identify where they're at, where they need to go. Uh, and then we can dig in with uh, with design uh, sessions, training sessions, whatever is necessary to really, uh, you know, kind of accelerate their program further. And yeah. so we use a variety of different techniques like event storming, job stories, and then API modeling and design to make all that happen. Okay. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think you hit on something that may not be completely obvious to people. I think a lot of times folks associated with, uh, you know, associate APIs with developers. Ah, it's, you know, it's part of an application. It's a, it's right in the name application programmers interface and they think developers, but you know, even just you highlighting that it's, you know, this is something that the security team needs to get involved with. The teams that do compliance need to be aware of what's going on. You know, APIs, uh, while the name may apply to sort of applications, they touch they touch every sort of group within an organization oftentimes. They do. And and that makes, uh, makes my uh, engagement with organizations really interesting because I get to work with a lot of different groups across the organization based on, you know, what the what the engagement looks like. Uh, but I always like to remind organizations that APIs, while they're, they're technical in nature, they really do overlap with the business and with with product-based thinking. And so it's really exciting to be able to pull all these things together and get people to see APIs, not just as something that a few technical folks in the corner are, are knocking out, but something that's really an important part of any digital transformation strategy or any just um, enterprise IT uh, delivery process in general. And so just bringing everybody together to, to make that happen is, is uh, what gets, uh, makes things exciting for me, uh, as I, as I work with each of these organizations. Yeah. I think you hit on a, a really important point and something I don't know that people totally, totally grasp, especially the business owners. Um, you know, the first time that you explain to a business owner that there are going to be partners they work with or services that they engage with in which the only thing they're engaging with is an API, does it sort of blow their mind a little bit? I mean, if, you know, if you're a company that works with Twilio, who does all sorts of you know telephony services, like all you deal with is their API. If you deal with certain things, it's just their API. Does that kind of blow their mind that uh, you know there's not always people in the middle of these in these interactions and transactions? I, I think it's definitely a, a tremendous shift. Uh, I think if we look historically, a lot of organizations have already had digital integrations with their partners, with their supply chains, and so on. But it was oftentimes a one-off integration. So they did custom work to do a custom integration with some other organization up, upstream or downstream of them with some other partner that provides some kind of service. Uh, what they haven't really thought about is how do we make this reproducible? How do we make this scalable so that we spend a lot less time doing custom work and we allow others to onboard with us in a predictable and almost self-service uh, manner? 
uh, even though a lot of organizations may require some sort of handshake or or legal um, you know legal legal processes that have to occur behind the scenes. Uh, in essence, they're allowing developers to onboard and start using their APIs for integration um, very transparently. And that's a much different approach than the one-off integrations that we saw in the 2000s during the SOA days of SOAP and everything, where everything was was very much a one-off integration. Uh, now we're starting to see this seen as a, as a productized approach, right. uh, where it's a very prescriptive approach and, and we can even have portals to help developers get started quickly and easily. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I, I know sometimes when I talk to people about this, I, I'll i talk about the concept and they'll go, I don't know if I totally grasp it. And I'll just say, look, just do this. Go to, you know, api.whateverCompanyThatYouWorkWithFrequently.com. It could be like api.target.com or api.jpmorgan.com or whatever. And they'll be like, oh, wow, they're essentially, like you said, productizing things that are uh, you know, digital ways to talk to them in in totally different scalable ways. So yeah, it's always fascinating when they, they first kind of grasp that. Um, I want to I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about, about, about the developer perspective because obviously that's kind of often front and center. Um, do you find as you're talking to to developers about APIs that the conversation is is really different if the starting point is a a monolithic application that you're kind of bolting something on versus microservices versus you know some external thing or are there a lot of sort of common best practices that you, that you sort of follow in those different scenarios based on the application type? Uh, yeah, there's definitely a difference, and I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up. Um, I, I tend to try to steer away from thinking about monolithic versus microservice, but I do have people look at their APIs from, from a bit of a balance between evolution and experimentation. So evolution is where we want stability, but we we recognize that things aren't going to change. Those are the APIs that we would externalize either to our internal developers, and we want things to stay fairly stable and consistent, or those might be the APIs that we externalize out to partners or even to our customers. And then there's more of the, uh, the internal experimentation where we can try new things, and maybe we stand up an API and we break the API often as we figure new things out, or we just completely remove it when it goes away. And uh, so when I look at microservices, it's really a key benefit, which is reducing the coordination between teams. And when we find those boundaries and we establish those uh, uh, evolution-style APIs that sit on the boundary or the border of what our microservices are exposing, and we look at how we keep things stable, uh, then the way that we approach the design is going to be different. So there's foundationally kind of similar principles that exist between the APIs of microservices versus some sort of application level API uh, or APIs we we expose to partners or uh, to customers. But internally, the way we handle them and the way we apply a lifecycle to them is much different. And so we need to kind of consider, are we building an API that needs to be evolvable and stable, uh, that's safe? Or do we have uh, microservices that are kind of coming and going because they're more of kind of a internal detail of how we're decomposing our our application or decomposing our API down into smaller and smaller services. And we want to allow for experimentation and and rapid deployment and development and automation and uh, and reduce coordination between teams. And we're trying to, to tackle that. That's where the nuances really go go uh, uh, into different directions and requires different discussions with developers as a result. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. It's, uh, I'm wondering, do you, off the top of your head, without maybe disclosing, you know, names of people, can you give an example of maybe what would be a, 
you know, a longer term type of, you know, like a like a business problem that would be assigned to a longer term uh, API strategy versus, you know, kind of a business problem that might align to this sort of experimentation uh, concept? Yeah. So so I think internally, there's a lot of experimentation happening with business analytics and the integration of machine learning into that and the services that we need to have, particularly microservices that we want to stand up that integrate with different kinds of backend systems that pull all this data and produce different kinds of of um perform different kinds of business analytics and and different kinds of data crunching and so on and produce different output, we may want to try different kinds of strategies for how we determine if something is fraudulent versus an API that we need to integrate with from externally where we just uh, surface the results of perhaps a a fraudulent um, detection event that has occurred. And we want to disconnect those two. So we want the stability of an API that allows us to surface or do push notifications when those alerts occur, but we want to be able to rapidly change the strategies behind the scenes of how we detect it. And that may require different services that cooperate together or stand independently, but are hidden behind the scenes. And no one really knows that they exist other than the the business themselves as they're trying different strategies or standing up different uh, ways of of performing that fraud detection using different data sets that may evolve and and surface over time. Yeah, that makes that makes complete sense. Um, Let's kind of let's kind of build on that a little bit. So, you know, we 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 hit on sort of microservices a little bit earlier. you know, microservices tend to sort of get aligned to the idea of, hey, we're going to be, uh, you know, making changes more frequently. Um, you know, the good news is that makes them somewhat independent. They can work on their own. But at some point, they do come back to having to coordinate with, you know, kind of a, a bigger thing that makes up an application or a framework. How, how you know, we, we've talked in the past on the show about, you know, the challenges that invokes with like databases and schemas. What is that? What kind of challenges does that create for for APIs in terms of um, you know versioning, in terms of testing against stuff that um, you know is rapidly changing? It really makes us need to look at our API lifecycle in a much different way. Uh, there's going to be different speeds at which our API needs to change. Uh, it's more than just a design build release process. It really means that for those. APIs that we're evolving and trying to keep stable, we need to get that feedback from our internal and external stakeholders quickly. Uh, we need to be able to make rapid changes to that API design in the in the process and then make sure that we can stabilize it at some point. So it's a combination of things. One is it means that we need to set proper expectations with the consumers that are going to be using the API. In a lot of larger organizations that have many, many sprint teams running in parallel, producing APIs at different speeds and different release cycles, um, we need a way to be able to discover APIs, but we need to be able to set that expectation with what stage of the life cycle they're at. Are we initially designing or, or are we in a pre-release of this API? Is it stable? Uh, has it kind of run its life cycle and it's now in, uh, marked as deprecated or has it been completely sunset? Or is this just an experimental API, something that we're putting out here to see if it's even going to work? Uh, we're standing it up and and going to allow people to give us some feedback. And that 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 process and that classification goes whether you're targeting internal developers are going to consume your API either via a service or some sort of more stable API product that's part of your overall API surface area or portfolio of the organization. 
uh, or if you're externalizing the API and you're standing something up to, to start working with partners, you're, you're beginning a partner program, you need to get some feedback on that API and you're not quite sure if, you, if that design is going to be sufficient for what they need. Uh, so being able to classify it is important. That then allows us to set the right expectations and all the while um, incorporate the agile processes that we really enjoy uh, and, and need with, um, you know, with automation around DevOps and, uh, and everything else that we need. That allows us to get that feedback, to make the adjustments we need, to be able to then get to a point of stability uh, that we can support that API over time, that the support costs of that API uh, if it's ever changing, is not too high for both ourselves as the producer and the many consumers that we might have of that API. Right, right. And I, I, I have a feeling that you know, kind of given uh, how much variability can happen in that in that conversation, the the amount of things that can touch it, sort of comes back to that that eight point compass that you were mentioning. You probably have to come back to going. Uh, you know, here, this is this is the framework we're going to use for how you're going to do changes. And but let me let me sort of kind of reinforce to you, uh, you know, here's the groups that it may impact. Here's the groups that need to be in this conversation. Here's the people that have to understand what's going to change for them as well. Absolutely. And, and the 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 problem that we sometimes have with with uh, the agile processes is they don't necessarily encourage or afford us time to be able to do a little bit of that design and that investigation we need to do. Yeah. So I always lean and remind people that the Dave Thomas quote, uh, Dave Thomas being one of the pragmatic programmers saying a big design up front is dumb, but no design is even dumber. And that while we want to go as fast as we possibly can, uh, it does make sense for us to slow down, think about the problem at hand, look at the outcomes that are, that, uh, that our customers need, not just the data we're trying to move back and forth. Um, work on that design and then iterate on it and setting those expectations with the people that are integrating with us to say, there might be a change that this design is going to, you know, break. There might be a chance of that. Uh, if, if we, uh, are still working out some of the, the details because there's too many unknowns for us to really freeze this design, um, or, or we need the agility to be able to make changes when they arrive. Uh, but once we reach a point where we feel like that API is stable, uh, then, then we're then then we're going to freeze it, and we're going to make non-breaking changes moving forward. And so, as you said, that eight-point compass is really essential because it helps us to understand kind of what tolerance do we have, what uh, for our own internal developers to accept breaking changes of APIs as we move forward, um, and what tolerance do our downstream consumers have, our partners, and our customers, and to adjust the speed at which we make changes or roll out APIs for external consumption. Uh, based on that level of tolerance that we have. Yeah. Yeah. For a second there, you were talking about Dave Thomas. I thought you were going to give me a Wendy's quote about making always fresh hamburgers and uh, <laughs> <laughs> had to change my thinking there for a second. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, just kind of more general things that that you have to kind of constantly be reinforcing with people, educating them with about APIs. So, you know, does it does it evolve from, you know, kind of the first times you engage with them when it's sort of new? Do you have to break a lot of bad habits? What are some of the just things that you're always having to remind people so that they don't get into bad habits or, or reinforce them? The One of the most surprising things that I find after so many years of, of conducting workshops is HTTP itself is, is something I spend quite a bit of time on. Um, I always do a, a raise of hands in the workshop, and, and usually about 25% of the workshop audience has never seen HTTP go over the wire uh, in its URL form. They've, they've used it via tools. Uh, they've used it via helper libraries if they're developers. 
uh, or maybe they never really thought about how the browser works underneath or never been exposed to that. So we do spend a lot of time going through the basics of HTTP and how it works. Uh, but now that a lot of, now that APIs are a little bit more mainstream, this is this is becoming a little bit more accepted. We spend a little time in HTTP. I don't have to convince people of the merits of APIs or exactly what they are. Uh, so then we can focus a lot on the lesser known techniques that that exist in HTTP itself. Things like content negotiation, language negotiation, uh, concurrency control, change detection with last modified dates and entity tags and conditional headers and so on, where we can really help people design APIs. Um, in a robust manner and not have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, I sometimes see API designs, it could really be simplified, but just understanding HTTP itself. Um, on, on top of that, then uh, I spend a lot of time reinforcing fundamentals of software design. Things like modular decomposition and loose coupling and high cohesion, things that are really important as part of an API design, whether it's in a single programming language as part of a module you're building in Java or Golang or whatever it might be, or if it's uh, something bigger uh, like a web API and how it's going to interact with others. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned HTTP. Uh, you know, I think so many people take it for granted. Uh, we did a show about HTTP with, with Julia Evans a few weeks ago or a few months ago, and I was shocked at like how much uh, interest and uptake there was just about that specific show, maybe 20 or 30% more than usual. So it does sort of make sense that uh, you're seeing it as something that people aren't terribly familiar with. And then when you, you start explaining it to them, it's like, oh, wow, there is, there's a ton that goes on there uh, just to you know do the things that we take for granted sometimes with the web and, and interactions. Uh, let me ask you one last question. And this one's maybe a little big, but what are, you know, we're, we're starting to see some interesting uh, you know, transactions, we're seeing these acquisitions, we're seeing some of these companies that are, you know, delivering services that are just a bundle of APIs. Um, what are some of the, the kind of trends or things that you're really following or stuff that you, you see emerging, um, you know, maybe over, over the last year or, or what should be coming next? Sure. Yeah. So our, our uh, we're definitely seeing a, a bit of a shift, as I mentioned earlier. People are more accepting of APIs. They may or may not have a formal API program, but they're definitely seeing APIs as first-class citizens in their organization. Um, they're also looking at productizing their APIs. We've had companies actually go public that are pure API products. Um, and we've seen marketplaces like the Heroku marketplace really enable companies like, um, for myself, like SendGrid, finding them through a marketplace rather than uh, directly being marketed to in different channels. So we have APIs around us all over. And uh, it's, it's definitely changing the way we think about app development and, and how we put those things together. Um, one of the things that I remind people a lot of is the communication platforms we're using today. Things like Slack, Slack and WebEx Teams and Microsoft and other solutions that exist out there. There are communication platforms that are starting to take the place of email. So rather than going to an email box and getting a static email, I'm actually interacting real time with people. Uh, but I'm also interacting real time with applications. So rather than going to my browser and opening up a new tab and, and launching a web app that I integrate with, instead, the apps are coming to me in the communication platforms. And what that means is our, our APIs, whether they're REST APIs, GraphQL, gRPC, or if they're more event-driven um, from WebSockets and, and SSE and, and webhooks and so on, these types of APIs are enabling us to really communicate and change the way we interact with people. And, and now they're in allow, allowing applications to come to us rather than us going to the applications. Yeah. So if I kind of peer oh, – go ahead. No, no, no. That all makes sense. Go on. Keep going. Uh, so if I peer into the future a little bit and I think about all the APIs that we have, I, I kind of – being uh, 
kind of straddling two different generations, kind of the client server world and the client network web world. Um, I'm, I'm starting to see a lot of APIs show up that are now becoming today's equivalent of yesterday's desktop widgets that existed inside of things like Visual Basic and Power Builder and Delphi and other environments that I could quickly pull things together. And so we're starting to see kind of a resurgence like we see about every 10 or 15 years, a sort of this, this idea of low code, no code. And I think in the past, developers have always said, well, you can't build applications without writing code. And I think we've proven that there's value in having developers that are really good at building APIs and really good at building custom front ends when we need them. And there's times when people just need to get things done. And, and maybe there's an opportunity for these APIs now with a combination of tools that are out there to start helping us put together apps quickly for the things that are ephemeral. Uh, things, you know, apps that might be around for a few days, a few weeks or a few months, and then they get thrown away. And we really don't care because we we didn't spend a lot of time and investment in building them. We just kind of whipped them together with different tools that help us make it happen. Uh, and rather than having to have a developer spend, you know, their their precious time building yet another login screen or yet another visualization screen that, that could be done for them. So, so I think these APIs are now starting to come together and become components that are going to allow us to build bigger things. And I know it's a bit pie in the sky. I know a lot of developers kind of roll their eyes at, at kind of this idea of low code, no code, and it's not a perfect solution. But but I think our APIs are enabling us to start to shift back to integration and less to custom builds uh, and, and allow us to kind of find the right focus that we need based on the problem space at hand. You know, right. invest invest the developers with the with the extreme talents and deep understanding of domain to build something they need, and allow other people to just kind of whip together applications that we need to visualize uh, or report, you know, build reports and so on with. So, pretty excited about what I'm seeing, you know, kind of in this space and and where APIs are going, and and uh, and and that's really my mission is help organizations kind of navigate those waters, build APIs that that will produce outcomes for people, and not just push data around so that people aren't manipulating data raw data all the time. They can actually just get things done, uh, execute the workflows that they need, whether it's inside their communication platforms or, or in custom applications or mobile devices or whatever it is. Yeah. I, I, one, little, one last thing popped up before I let you go. I was, I was thinking about this uh, just as you were answering. Um, and and give, give me the Cliff Notes version of this. Um, you know, we, we've seen sort of trends come along. Uh, you know, we, we saw things like DevOps come along and then we saw people say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm part of the DevOps team. I'm part of a, I'm a DevOps engineer. Um, you know, as you're seeing APIs become more critical to businesses, are, are you finding um, teams, you know, companies try and build API teams? Is is API just a skill that should be embedded in teams and applications? I mean, what's your what's your sort of real quick high level take on, you know, should there should there be a team for APIs? Should it just be something that people think about? Well, you know, any any thoughts on that before we go? Yeah, yeah, I I really do believe that it, it requires a dedicated team. Some organizations have API guilds. Uh, if they're kind of a matrix style organization, some have formalized uh, a, a department or a group either underneath the office of the CIO or CTO that that oversees the API program. Uh, some of them have dedicated center of excellence groups around it. Uh, there's a lot of value in it. There, there are, as, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of dimensions to it and a lot of complexity to it. And so having people grouped together uh, that can share their knowledge across the organization uh, and really deeply focus on it uh, is highly highly valuable to organizations today to be able to move quickly and, and apply APIs in the organization effectively. Excellent. Excellent. Well, James, uh, as always, thank you so much for the time this afternoon. If people want to reach out to you, you know, pick your brain about all these things, what's, what are good ways for them to, uh, to get in touch? 
Uh, so I'm on uh, Twitter and I also have a website. So uh, the website is, is launchany.com, L-A-U-N-C-H-A-N-Y.com. Uh, the same launchany can be uh, used on Twitter to find me there. Uh, and also put out a weekly hand curated newsletter on topics of the day you mentioned earlier. Uh, that's at apideveloperweekly.com. You can go sign up there. Very uh, cool. as well. Very cool. We'll get all that in the show notes, folks. And uh, James, as always, thank you so much for the insight. Uh, we should need to do this more more frequently. And uh, folks, as always, thank you for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for rating the show on iTunes and other places. And with that, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 